The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told April 3rd at Northern Light United Church. The theme was White Lies with live music by Tom Loker. Our first speaker is Karen Dahman. Karen Dahman started out in life farming in the corn and bean fields of Iowa. At a young age, she found herself irresistibly drawn into the ministry. Some 40 years later, she is living in Alaska and serves as the pastor at Aldersgate United Methodist Church in Juneau's Mendenhall Valley. Returning to her farming roots, she became a master gardener a few years ago, taking night classes her first cold, dark winter in Anchorage. Come on up, Karen. Thank you. When does the timer start? <laughs> Did anybody see the interview between President Jimmy Carter and Stephen Colbert last week? Yeah. They talked about white lies, so you should Google it. I entered the realm of white lies about some 25 years ago. One day I wasn't in the realm, and the next day I was. It was like I'd gone through the wardrobe and ended up in some Narnia hell. Only it wasn't a wardrobe, it was a closet, not a wardrobe. And I spent about five years wandering around in there. I met somebody I loved, and I worked for a denomination uh, where I wasn't supposed to be in love with that person, and so hence I became secretive about my relationship. We bought a house about a year into our relationship, and at that point, we decided to get married. Of course, not legally. Of course, not in a church. And not with any of my clergy colleagues officiating, because if they officiated, they could be charged, tried, and defrocked. So my partner and I blessed our own union in a backyard of a friend. Not too long after that, we decided to start a family. And when my partner got pregnant, of course, because I couldn't do that. Um, a whole new world evolved, and I wish I could tell you more, but I only have seven minutes, so uh, I can't tell you too much about that whole experience, except for as these things work out, it started to become obvious that she was pregnant. And somebody from my congregation noticed and decided to throw a shower. And so the shower was for my housemate. And I sat across the room and I watched her open presents and the silly little games and everything. And I thought to myself, I am in Narnia hell. And I am never getting out because now we're having a child. When the baby was born, we had a lot of medical complications and I needed to go on, uh, I needed some time off. And since I adopted the baby, I thought, well, I'm entitled to some parental leave. And so I told my boss I want to take parental leave, which resulted in a visit from two of my superiors to our house. And you know what I was worried about when they were coming to visit? I was worried about this rainbow bumper sticker on my partner's car. <laughs> I forgot to tell you the thing about getting married. The thing I was worried about with that was this shiny new gold ring that I was wearing. And all the 
fear I had that someone was going to guess that I was married because I got married in secret. Well, I wanted to take parental leave, but I did not take it. I ended up taking a study leave, which my partner vehemently vetoed because she said, and I quote, no one likes being lied to. It was our one real lie in the realm of Narnia white lies. And she was right. It kind of all blew up a couple months later. I was in this Narnia hell, and it was getting to me. So we decided that I would go on leave and uh, leave that congregation. And I was having, at that point, the best two years of my life. I started to be a stay-at-home mom, and everything was just great. I even forgot I was in Narnia until he called me Mama. And then I got really scared. I thought, what if he calls me Mama in public? I, I got to work this out. I was trying to figure out ways to help him not ever call me Mama in public. I was thinking about teaching this little tiny child to lie. And I had a huge argument with my partner. And we decided it was time to find that closet door, that wardrobe, and get the hell out of Narnia. At which point I told my bishop. Well, I told him about my partner and our baby, our family. And then started a very long legal process at the end of which I was brought up on charges and put on trial, church trial, in front of a jury of my peers. It was better than it sounds. <laughs> I had a legal team, lots of volunteer lawyers and such, and we had a whole panel of expert witnesses, biblical scholars, church historians, people who are experts in ethics, and they came and they were my witnesses for the defense and witnessed, gave testimony for three days at the end of which the jury was sent off, and then they made their decision and came back, and it was not guilty. Yep. Not guilty. And we had, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, even the paper in Rome talked about what had happened in this little town in Washington State. The beautiful thing about it was we had these three days of transcripted testimony. Unfortunately, the presiding bishop decided to seal those transcripts and keep the church in Narnia. But I, however, was now out of Narnia. I couldn't be retried, the church couldn't appeal, and I was in good standing and entitled to an appointment. So I now serve a church here in Alaska. And no, I don't think it's an exile. I serve a, a courageous church that long before I showed up, courageously voted unanimously to work toward the full inclusion of all in our denomination. And our denomination is struggling right now. It's trying to get out of Narnia, and some people think it might happen. I certainly hope so. I'm done. Up next, we have Greg Cheney. Greg enjoys many outdoor activities, including hunting, fishing, hiking, or building stone arches from beach rocks. Greg doesn't go to the movies very often, but when he goes to the Nickelodeon, he brings his own popcorn bowl. 
And when he goes to the Gross Alaska theaters, he orders the large tub and tries to eat it all before the previews are done so he can get a free refill before the movie starts. His wife, Bonnie, thinks he's a popcorn fanatic, but he prefers to think of himself as a popcorn enthusiast. Come on up, Greg. It's my timer. Okay, it also symbolizes mortality, the hourglass. So it was, it was the fall of 1987, and I was on Shuyak Island, which is a small island north of Kodiak. I was working for Alaska State Parks, and that summer, they had tried to get two people to go to Shuyak Island to work, but they couldn't find uh, anyone but me, so they weren't gonna send me. So my white lie was, I'll be fine. So I was working out at this uh, remote camp by myself for a month, or several months, but then the end of the season came and it was time for me to pack up everything that was out there. And one of those things was a big, large aluminum skiff that we'd been using to run around the island in. I say we because that's what you do when you're by yourself, you talk to yourself. And so, <laughs> so I, was, um, I was, you know, tied it to a tree and was using it come along to pull it up into the trees. And when you're by yourself for a long time, you really get good at listening. It was dead silent, it was a calm day, and all of a sudden I heard a large branch, like this big around, break. And then the silence. It was very strange. So I, I stopped pulling on the boat and I walked over on the beach to find out what the sound was. And this magnificent Kodiak brown bear stood up out of the brush. And this is a mature bear I couldn't put my arms around its chest. That's, those are things you think about. <laughs> and I was standing on the beach, and it was on the high tide line, so it was up a little higher than me, so it was over 10 feet tall. And it was about 20 yards away, which is a sort of comfortable distance. But I was calm. I was confident, because from a lifetime of education, I have learned that humans are the most dangerous things in the forest. <laughs> and as soon as he knew what I was, he would run away. So I was attempting my best calm, confident conversation with a bear. And it, my favorite thing about listening to bear encounters is what do people say to bears? It's really interesting stuff. I say mostly like, hey, bear, whoa, bear, easy bear. And so I was talking to the bear. And I was also thinking, he's not leaving. So I should go and, and I'll go get in the skiff because this is like my home territory. Even a rabbit will fight in its burrow. So a lot of predators will be afraid to go into the home territory. So I got in, the, got in the skiff, and the other part of my brain is thinking, what did I leave in the skiff? What can I use? Oh, my God. And so I'm looking around. I'd stripped it clean. There was nothing in the skiff. But I kept thinking, where's that flare gun? It was right there all summer. But it wasn't there anymore. And the bear, of course, walks right over to the bow of the skiff, and he's standing right where the rope is tied to the tree. So the skiff's not going anywhere. <laughs> the rifle that I used for self-defense was on the other side of the bear, so it might have well been in Tahiti or something. Okay, so there's nothing but me and air between me and this bear. And I look up at him, and he is looking at me, and then he very nonchalantly turns sideways and looks off in the distance. I'm like, phew, something has distracted him. He's leaving. It's going to be fine. And then 
very calmly and very intently, he turns and looks me in the eye again. And that's when I remembered the bear video from when earlier this summer I'd watched this video about bear behavior. When bears are being aggressive, like they're fighting over a fishing hole, the big dominant bear will go up, stand up, and turn sideways and then look back. And I realize, as I'm staring at this bear, I can see the moisture on his whiskers, and each claw is bigger than my fingers. I'm like, this bear knows what I am. <laughs> and he's not afraid. Okay, so I'm thinking, well, okay, just keep calm, <laughs> talk confidently. So then the bear drops on all fours and goes, Whoosh! And it's just, it wasn't like a dog bark. It's a lot more air, a lot of volume. And you're like, oh, this is big. And then it started, he started, and it's only 10 yards. I don't know how he did this, but he, he started this little charge. And it was a lot of motion, but not a lot of forward distance. And a bear can run about 35 miles an hour if they want to, which means there was no way I was running away from him. So I took off my coat to make myself look bigger. And I was like, okay. But what was funny was I looked up and I realized if I was twice as big as I am, he would still be bigger than me. So that didn't work. And then came, and I was remembering the bear video, the stiff-legged walk. Now, when the stiff-legged walk is when the bear is before contact, the bear comes up to the other bear, and they have this very pronounced stiff-legged walk. And that was right before the narrator said, contact in a very monotone dispassionate voice but it was when these two bears started tearing each other apart and i knew that wasn't going to well, go well for me so i looked in the bottom of the skiff trying to find the flare gun and that's when i remembered a story about stan price he's a hermit that lived on admiralty island he used to carry a club and i heard that he hit the bear on the nose when the bear would get too close and i thought well, maybe that will work for me. So I grabbed this oar, and I thought, okay, the thing to do normally is curl up a ball, put your hands behind your neck, put your face against your knees in the fetal position, and let the bear chew on you until it gets bored and leaves. <laughs> I couldn't do that. So as he's coming around in his stiff-legged walk, and this actually happened pretty fast. It takes a while to tell. I grabbed the oar, and then I'm thinking, one swing. I got to hit him right on the nose, my whole life's in the balance because if I miss and I make him mad, he's definitely going to kill me. And so I held back and then I remembered. And this is where storytelling can save your life. <laughs> I remembered a story from Algonquin Park in Canada where a guy had scared a black bear away by beating on a canoe with his canoe paddle. And so I thought, well, hey. So I took my oar and I slammed the seat in front of me. And at this point, the bear's really close and he just went, boom. His eyes got big because I was like departing from the bear video that we'd both watched earlier that year. And I was not doing, well, like not following the script. And so he stops and then I'm like, whoa, that worked. And I just went crazy. I just started bashing the skiff as hard as I could. And I was gonna break the seat. So I started hitting the bow and the bow started bound, bounding down, down. And my oar was just shattering into shards going everywhere. And I was standing there with a, a piece of oar about two feet long, nice and jagged. And I looked, and the bear was very confidently walking away. They, they never want to look afraid, right? So at that point, I was a little concerned because the bear was on the end of the peninsula and it had to come back. And it wasn't a matter of if, but when. So I was finishing packing up the camp and I looked behind me and I heard this 
this uh, sound like a sea lion. So I looked out, and it was the bear swinging right back to me. So I pulled out my rifle. Now I had the gun. I was more confident. I had the largest noisemaker in the world. So I just started shooting in the air, and the bear just kept swimming a little bit off, a little bit off. It ran out of the, the brush, I mean, out of the, on the beach about 100 yards away, went into the brush, and it was getting dark. So I slept with my eyes wide open that night, and I'm still waiting for the bear to come back. Our next speaker is Bonnie Cheney. Bonnie was born in Bayonne, New Jersey, but she's never pr pronounced it New Jersey. <laughs> she is mostly retired enjoying, and enjoying every minute of it. She moved to Juneau in May 1983 after coming up for her brother's wedding the previous November. The marriage didn't last, but Bonnie's been here ever since. She really doesn't like blinking Christmas lights, and she jumps at sudden noises. Please welcome Bonnie to the stage. So as you've probably figured out, Greg's my husband that didn't get eaten by the bear. He wouldn't be my husband if he had been eaten by the bear. So it is late 1987, and I'm at a kayak club pool session. And there used to be a kayak club in town, and we'd have pool sessions every so often so that people could practice some skills that they might need in an emergency situation, but would want to do it in a warm water environment, as opposed to out in, say, Gastonau Channel. So some of the things we encouraged people to do were to capsize your kayak so you could try to get out of it. We call it a wet exit, where you just pop your spray skirt and you swim on out. And then you turn your kayak over and you try to climb back in. Um, but ultimately, the goal was to try to learn how to do an Eskimo roll. And an Eskimo roll is really hard to do in a sea kayak. And it's really disorienting when you're hanging upside down in a kayak in the water and it's, you're trying, it's just really an uncomfortable feeling. I never really got the hang of doing that Eskimo roll. Well, while the pool session's going on, this guy, Greg, walks in and he can do an Eskimo roll, no problem. I'm impressed. So we hit it off. We start talking, we start dating. We do the usual first date things like movies. And then we start hiking a lot together. You know, Juno's got such great places to hike. Mount Juno, Spalding Meadows. And we also really enjoyed kayaking. And we would go kayaking out to Benjamin Island in the winter. It was one of our favorite places to go because it's so fun to see the sea lions out there. So, you know, as we get to know each other, I learned that Greg's been hunting most of his life. And he built a canoe when he was younger. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is my kind of guy. You know, he, he likes the outdoors. He's obviously very capable and competent, easygoing, and he's kind of cute. <laughs> a few months go by. It's kind of springtime now. We decide to take a kayak trip, and we decide to go to Pack Creek. We load up our kayaks at Sheep Creek, paddle across to Oliver's Inlet, tram the kayaks across to Seymour Canal, back in the kayaks, paddle down to Pack Creek, because we're hoping to see a lot of bears. Well, 
we must have timed it wrong because there weren't hardly any bears there. And Admiralty Island has one of the highest density of bears populations in America. And Pack Creek is a place where they like to come, but they weren't there. Well, we kayaked over to Swan Island then because we were going to set up camp and we did all the things you're supposed to do in bear country when you camp. You know, we cooked far away from the tent. We hung our food. No, absolutely no food in the tent. So it's getting dark. I'm really tired. It's been a big day. I mean, we've kayaked all the way from Sheep Creek. So I'm kind of starting to doze off in the tent. And Greg's pretty restless. And I don't know why. Now, Greg has not told me the story about the bear on Shuyak Island. <laughs> I don't know why he's like so nervous. Is it because it's the first time we're camping together? I don't know. And he's like, I hear something outside. There's something rustling around out there. I'm like, I don't hear anything. <laughs> and then <laughs> he realizes it's his eyelashes brushing against his sleeping bag. <laughs> So we laugh about that, and then I, I promptly fall asleep. I kind of doubt Greg slept at all that night. So we're up the next day, back in the kayaks, and we're back, paddling back up to the head of Seymour Canal, because we've rented the cabin for that night. And this time we do get to see bears. There's several along the shoreline, and we've got lots of time, so we're taking our time, paddling slowly. and. We just start floating and watching this brown bear that's just lay, laying in the grass, kind of relaxed, eating. And then just like faster than you can follow with your eye, it just jumps up, runs up the hill. I mean, it's just hard to imagine something that big can move that fast. We continue our paddling up to the cabin and we get there, get ourselves settled in and then go for a walk in the, the mud flats around there. And there are lots and lots of really big brown bear tracks. It's nighttime again. I'm falling asleep again. I'm, I'm kind of going to bed early all the time. So, and, but I'm noticing Greg's still kind of nervous. And then Greg hears a scratching sound. I don't hear anything. And he is positive that there is a bear out there that is trying to get into the cabin and get us. That bear's either going to come through the window or through the door. So he gets out his flashlight. He gets out his Magnum revolver. And for you gun folks, that's, it was a Ruger Blackhawk. And... So he's trying to stare out the window, but he can't see anything. He, all he can see is his reflection. <laughs> and then he notices an axe handle. Well, it worked before. He sets down his revolver. He picks up that axe handle. Bang, bang, bang against the door. And I'm like, wide awake now. And I'm like, WTF, this guy is going crazy. I'm going to spend the rest of the night here with him? 
bang, bang, bang. There's not a sound anywhere. And I'm sure there's not an animal within 100 yards of this cabin. And then I hear it scratch, scratch, scratch. I know Greg hears it. <laughs> scratch, scratch, scratch. And it's coming from behind us and not near the door. Greg puts down the axe handle, picks up his magnum revolver, whips around, and there's a mouse. <laughs> well, so the bear was a mouse. And Greg wasn't quite the fearless Alaskan outdoorsman I had pictured. But he's a really great guy. And we've been together ever since. Up next, we have Jeremy Shea. Um, Jeremy is a journalist, a bacon nerd, and a snarky Twitter user. You can follow him at J-M-L-H-S-I-E-H. -E That's how his last name is spelled. <laughs> Thankfully, he tells people how to pronounce it. One time, Anderson Cooper made fun of him live on CNN. Jeremy grew up mostly in suburban Maryland. He moved to Juneau in 2008, trying to run away from the Great Recession. <laughs> Rude. The general implosion of the print news business and in search of adventure. Before the move, he lived in South Carolina's low country where his story takes place. So in 2007, I was living in Beaufort, South Carolina, which is the second oldest city in uh, South Carolina after Charleston. It's down on the coast, and it's a really pretty place to live. And it's old, and it's small, and there's beaches, and live oaks, and Spanish moss everywhere. And in 2007, it was also the height of the housing boom. So everyone else was discovering how beautiful it was and building houses, and people were selling land and making money. People were building houses and making money. People were renovating old houses and making money. And along with this boom, there was an influx of people from South America, from Central America and Mexico, Spanish-speaking laborers, taking advantage of this uh, labor demand. And you can imagine there was a lot of racial animus building around this, and immigration became a topic that I covered for the newspaper. So I'm in the newspaper office one afternoon, and my editor gets a call, jots something down on paper and says he's got an address, needs someone to check it out. You know, the details are kind of fuzzy, but basically someone on the other end of the county had heard maybe on Spanish-language radio that there was a couple in our coverage area that was pregnant with quintuplets. So, falls to me, I grab the address, I grab a notepad, and I grab a photographer, and we drive out, and we're trying to make our deadline when we're in a hurry. Neither of us speak Spanish. <sighs> and we show up, and there's a flat lot with a modular home on it, a trailer home. And we just go up, and we knock on the door, and we meet Nancy Cantu who is a, uh, you know, she's Latina, a Spanish speaker, not much English. A large woman, well, a short woman, but a, a round woman. And I put her in her late 30s, you know, she had some lines in her face. And we talked to her, introduced ourselves as best we can. I looked up a few words like reportero and periodico beforehand to make sure she was, she understood who we were. 
And she said, yeah, she's comfortable telling her, her story, and we meet her beau also, uh, Juan Salvador Solis. The first time I see him, he looks really young. He's really skinny, and he's really small, and he's got a little peach fuzz on his lip. And I thought he might have been her child. But he says, no, he's, he's 23 or 24 in his 20s, and yeah, he's, he's the dad. And they tell us the story like, yeah, she's pregnant with quintuplets. And we want to be absolutely sure about this, so we go over a couple different ways, like Cinco, five? You know, she says, see, see, and she's got names picked out for the five kids that I'm jotting down, and we got to rush and, and knock out just the most basic details of what's going on. We can follow up later to make deadline. So we wrap up our interview. We're outside the trailer home, and Juan and Nancy pose for a photo, and the next day, front page of the newspaper, big picture. Nancy, Juan, and the home. And the composition of the photo always sticks with me because it looks like American Gothic. <laughs> Except instead of the farmer and the farmer's wife and the farmstead in the background, it's Nancy and Juan and the trailer home in the background. And the story gets picked up all over. We, I worked for a, a pretty large newspaper chain and the story got picked up by a bunch of different newspapers. There's a TV station in Savannah that sent a crew up to, to reproduce it for the story for TV. And the community really opened up. The local high school had a big fundraiser for the quintuplets. There was a wealthy snowbird who had a fancy waterfront home who invited me and Nancy to a baby shower uh, that they were going to throw for Nancy and the quintuplets. You know, people were sending in baby diapers and baby formula, baby clothes and, and money from all over the place, and they were just getting really showered with, with generosity. So I thought it was just a good news story about people setting aside their politics and, you know, doing something nice for their neighbors. Uh, but then I get a call in the newsroom, and it's a medical professional. And she tells me, you know, without fertility drugs, the chances of someone being pregnant naturally with quintuplets is just astronomically rare. Very, very rare. It happens. It's like winning the lottery or something like that. So it's not completely inconceivable, but you should check it out. And the other thing she tells us, she's got a second red flag, is if she's really pregnant with quintuplets, she's got, like, grave medical concerns, and she really needs to be into care for herself and for the babies. So... We start brainstorming it and gaming it out, like, okay, how do we prove she's pregnant? You know, it's like, look, maybe there was a language barrier issue, and we need to make sure we've we got someone that actually speaks Spanish to re-interview her. So I did that, and we game it out a little bit, like, what if she is lying? You know, what, did it did it make sense? We reached out to them; they didn't really seek out the attention, so it didn't make sense in that way. The gig was going to be up if they were lying in a few months. You know, and what was the end game? Would they just ride off in the sunset with all the baby diapers and formula they could carry? <laughs> so I was a little, little skeptical both ways. Um, you know, grabbed the Spanish language reporter, re-interviewed her. She said, yeah, quintuplets. I'm like, okay, well, how can we prove this? Can we get medical documentation from your doctor? And she couldn't produce any. Can we get your contact information for your doctor? She couldn't produce it. Can we tag along on a doctor's visit next time you go somewhere? She said, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So we show up the next time when it's time to go, and suddenly the doctor has canceled the appointment. You know, so now we've got all these red flags, and we're thinking, like, okay, something's fishy with a story. We don't know what. We have to prove she's not pregnant. And proving someone's not pregnant, proving a negative, is really, really hard. You know, you just game it out and you try to think about it. Like, you know, we could wait a few months. Or, you know, we could somehow inspect her womb, and, you know, we can't do that. <laughs> but apparently the Beaufort County Sheriff's Office had the same thought, and they could do that. They got a, uh, a search warrant for her womb. <laughs> so she had a court-ordered ultrasound, 
and she was not pregnant. It was just totally made up. It turned out in court eventually that her name was Erica Nieves Abrigo. Uh, she had a record, a criminal record in Florida, and she was. She was uh, undocumented in the country illegally and was facing deportation charges along with fraud um, from all the people that she'd received gifts from as a result of this story. Uh, her beau, um, Peach Fuzz, <laughs> Juan uh, asserted in court that he was 16 years old, not in his 20s. And his uh, court records went dry after that because he petitioned to get his case moved to family court, where it's just usually sealed for, for minors. Um, this story, it's, it's funny and it's weird in, one weird, in strange ways, but it, it, it's still one of the things I feel the most guilty about doing, because I thought I was fighting the good fight and just telling regular people people's story and their, their extraordinary story of regular people but I end up you know, facilitating interstate fraud and <laughs> you know, uh, fueling racial animus in, in my home. So it was not, not great. And the other tough thing about it for me is I, I was just telling some university students yesterday that I was speaking to, you know, how do you get better at your job? How do you get better at this? And I always say, learn from your mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. This has been about 10 years now, and I, I don't know what the lesson is <laughs> from this story. <laughs> um, and it's what I struggle with. And, you know, I do know, for some reason, I don't trust pregnant women a whole lot. <laughs> That's my story. Thank you. listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. These stories were recorded April 3rd at Northern Light United Church. The theme was White Lies. Mudrooms has raised over $93,000 for nonprofits in Juno. Find us on Facebook or through our website at mudrooms.org. Our next speaker is Jill Remiel. I hope I'm saying that right. Jill has called Juno her home since she and her husband bought the historic Messerschmitt building after completing her graduate studies in architecture. Over the next 20 years, she started and managed numerous businesses she knew nothing about and managed to stay married as evidenced by the three children with her today. Jill is from Staten Island, New York, where the pizza is world-class, the tallest mountain is the landfill, and the salmon is farmed. <laughs> Please welcome Jill to the stage. I flipped up and over the handlebars of my bicycle when my bell-bottoms got stuck in my chain. Again. Again, right in front of Matthew. Not that it mattered. Matthew was not looking at me at all, nor was anyone else on the kickball team. We were completely mesmerized by Danielle, our neighbor, the neighbor to my right. As she was coming home from school, she gets driven to and from school by a black Cadillac sedan and a different driver that would pick her up and take her home every day. He had a leather jacket, slicked back hair, and a shirt that was unbuttoned till here, and a big gold rope 
chain. Danielle had a crisp white shirt and a perfectly pleated blue and brown Catholic school, school uniform with her knee socks and flats on. And she looked over at us. She knew we were all watching, kind of gave a and we knew we would see her real soon. So we're waiting, kickball's waiting, and she comes back. But is she wearing a kickball uniform, ready to play? No. She has a tube top that says, up your nose with a rubber hose. The <laughs> tightest Jordache jeans, the ones that you needed a hanger to go like this to get them on, and a pair of candies, pumps. <sighs> we all knew that we were not playing kickball that day, but that was okay. We all knew that Danielle, she was the boss, but really, her dad, he was the boss. Daniel used to hang out a lot during the day when my dad was at work, puttering around with his golf clubs, and I would ask my brother, why is he home all day when my dad's at work? And my brother would say, he has alternative employment. <laughs> and Cookie, Danielle's mom, had the most outstanding manicure, sparkly nails and long, that screamed to the entire world, I never work. <laughs> but being invited over to their house was my most favorite thing that could possibly happen. They had a shoe-off policy too, not like we do here, but they had wall-to-wall -wall sh white shag carpet, or as we would say, wall-to-wall -wall white shag carpet. <laughs> On Sunday afternoon at exactly 3 o'clock, I would grab my kickball, and I would walk outside to the space between our houses, and accidentally that ball would roll into their backyard right in front of their glass sliding door, and strangely, Cookie would invite me in for supper. And this happened every single week. And how I loved being invited over for dinner, which they had at 3 o'clock right after church. And there were tons of people there. There were nuns from Danielle's school and the priests and more women with the nails and more men with the shirts and the chains. And it was like a Federico Fellini movie. And Daniel had so much new stuff. A VCR, I had never seen one of those, a giant TV screen, and this copper ornate cappuccino machine, which Daniel's mom would make foam, the stiffest foam, that you could stand up a homemade biscotti in that foam. And I would, went home to my brother and said, why do they have all this stuff? And my brother said, it all fell off the truck. <laughs> and then I realized, gee, I haven't really seen Daniel in a couple of weeks. Where did he go? And my brother said, he's at college. He'll be there for a while. <laughs> and at that same exact week, Darlene and Desiree, Danielle's first cousins that had lived in LA, they moved in with them. And I said to my brother, where's their dad? And my brother said, he was offed. I said, ooh. So it's now the crisp fall, and we're outside playing hopscotch. 
And Danielle is starting to boast about all of the presents that Santa is going to bring her. I was getting a little beside myself about that, and I just stopped with a rock in my hand, that pose that you're about to throw your rock, and I said, Danielle, there is no Santa Claus. And Danielle gasped, and she started bawling, and Carrie, our other neighbor, looked at me, and she went, That was pretty much the beginning of the end. Because by next year, we were all in high school. There was no more kickball. We pretty much gave it up for boys. I wasn't joining them for Sunday family dinner any longer. And in January of that year, my dad fell ill. And what we thought was walking pneumonia, it turned out to be lung cancer. And three months later, he was gone. But all the years after that, my neighbors next door, they would take my mom's trash in, they would rake our leaves, they would shovel our snow, and I think there was even a hot water heater and a dryer and a microwave that must have fallen off a truck somewhere. <laughs> and my senior year of college, I came back home to visit, and I saw Daniel in the yard with his golf club still puttering around. And I said, Daniel, Daniel, I just spent an entire semester in Italy, and I thought he would be so proud of me. And he looked at me and he said, wow, you must have had the most delicious cappuccino. And I said, I did, I really did. And honestly, I thought of them every single day when I was there sipping cappuccino. And I really knew that for all their little white lies that I was told about them, that they were always truthful and re real to me. Okay. Up next, we have Carly Dennis. Carly is 19 years old and hails from Eagle River, Alaska. She's spending the spring in Juneau as part of her gap year, and she loves the quaint walkability of our town. Although she thinks that Junoites poke fun at Anchorage far too much, in August, she'll start classes at Pitzer College, part of the Claremont Consortium in Los Angeles, California. We're glad you're here, Carly. Come on up. Thank you. It'll be tough to leave Juno to go to California. <laughs> My parents have these two big, beautiful, titanium-reinforced wine glasses that they only use for special occasions. So a couple years ago, when they sat down at the kitchen table with my little brother and me and poured themselves two large glasses of wine, I was really concerned. I was 14, and we were moving from Eagle River, Alaska to Aberdeen, Scotland. My little brother and me were really upset, and we didn't want to be moving halfway around the world to a, a place where they spoke with a weird accent. But it only took us a, a month or two to realize that maybe it wasn't the worst thing in the world. And that was mainly because the school we went to in Scotland was so incredible. It was called the International School of Aberdeen, um, and it changed my life. 
It was really small, with just 800 students for K through 12. The teachers were outstanding and, and kind, and the students were really smart and driven. Um, and there was a really big emphasis on service and volunteering. So I started getting involved in the environmental club, and we, we did community litter pickups and composting, and we raised money for the World Wildlife Foundation. Um, and one time, we were able to go to the St. Andrew's Prize for the Environment, um, which is this really incredible competition where people from all over the world come and, and compete in the area of sustainability. And so they're in the fields of innovation and technology. And I met one of my favorite people to this day, uh, Catlin Powers. Um, she was a competitor, and she had designed this solar power stove for people living in, in rural western China um, who were living in poverty with, with poor air quality issues. But she was the first person to, to really show me that um, if you really care about something and if you're willing to work really, really, really hard um, and maybe leave college early, then you can really make such a difference. So two years later, when I moved back to Alaska, I was a junior in high school, and I was convinced that I wanted to, to go down a path of environmentalism. So I, I joined Alaska Youth for Environmental Action, and I, I signed petitions for, for clean energy, and I canvassed against Pebble Mine, and I did everything I could to try and protect the mountains and the snow and the salmon and, and everything that we love so, so, so much about, about this place. And currently, I'm on a gap year, working an internship with a, a local environmental nonprofit. And next year, I'll go to Pitzer, which is a, a really cool environmental uh, liberal arts school in Los Angeles, focused really heavily on social justice and environmental justice. So I'm really, really happy with all of the opportunities I've been given. And um, I'm so excited for, for next year to go to college. And I, I'm pleased with this narrative. But what really kills me is that it's not entirely truthful. <laughs> it is truthful, <laughs> but the fact is, the reason I've been given all of these opportunities um, and the reason I, I care so much about the environment, the reason I am who I am, in short, is because of big oil. My dad worked for BP for more than three decades. Um, it's where most of my family income came from, and it's, it's the reason we moved to Scotland. It was so he could work on the, the North Sea oil fields. And the international school that, that changed my life um, was an oil school. It was funded and founded by five big oil giants, and the only students who attended were rich oil children because they were the only ones who could afford to. And even the, the St. Andrew's Prize for the Environment that so inspired me um, was also funded and founded by a big oil giant, ConocoPhillips. <laughs> um, and now I'm, I'm not attending a rich oil school, but I am working an unpaid internship and um, attending a very expensive school next year, which, to be fair, I am, I am funding in part on my own, but largely subsidized by family income that came straight from the North Slope. So all of this really bothers me. It's, it's my white lie. When I'm pushing values of sustainability and environmentalism, um, I worry so, so much that I'm being untruthful to, to the people I work with and to my friends and to myself and, and unfair to my family, certainly. And not only untruthful, but it's so incredibly unfair if you think about all of the students and families who are funded by, by humble nonprofit salaries or, or minimum wage jobs who can't afford 
ideological gap years and, and expensive liberal arts schools. Um, and that, that kills me, it's ridiculous <laughs> that I should have this. Um, and so I worry about these things a lot. I wasn't sure if I should tell this story or not, but I decided that it's really important to me and it's a part of who I am, whether I, I like it or not, this, this white lie of my past. And I also decided that if I'm going to pursue a path of, of so many white lies and conflicts of interest, that the best thing to do would, is surely not to hide it, but to be truthful and transparent about it. Um, so for that, I'm really thankful to all of you who listen. And my hope is that between my past of big oil money and, and BP um, and the clean, green future I, I hope to help create, it'll all come out even in the end. Thank you. Our final speaker of the evening is a board member, Sarah Hannon. And last event, she roasted me up here, but I got nothing. But I will point out that a prospective politician picking the theme White Lies is intriguing. <laughs> Sarah is a veteran of the Mudroom stage and is on our storyboard. She first came to the Mudroom stage in February 2013 with the theme, First Time, to tell the quaint, romantic, funny tale of meeting a man and deciding to elope on their third date. They waited a few weeks, but they really did not know each other very well when they got married. There may have been some things left out of their backstories. Please welcome Sarah to the stage. Okay, so I've changed it up. A minister, a journalist, and a politician all show up on stage to tell lies. There's my story. I grew up the middle daughter of three to an outdoor Alaskan, hunting, fishing, gathering, recreating family. And my parents expected each one of us to contribute to the best of our abilities at every stage of the way. It was all girls that made no difference to my parents. Their expectation was we were gonna be independent and capable. And we fully understood that it wasn't about just the recreation and outdoor activity that it was a way for my parents to put good, healthy food on the table. And depending on your role in that, you develop different skill sets. And it was clear early on my older sister Ellen had some genes I didn't get. Her favorite thing is to jump out of bed before it's light and be going. I kind of ease into the day. And the whole alpha predator thing, she has it more than anyone else. She spent her entire adult life in Craig, Alaska, which you may not know, but is like the mecca for hunting, fishing, gathering, because something's always in season. And my sister is a revered huntress. By men who've hunted all over the world, I had an old guy once in Craig say to me, you're Ellen's sister, right? Yeah. You anything like her hunting? And I said, no. And he said, I was just checking to see if you were a liar. She's legendary. Back to our childhood. We had never had play guns, because we had real guns. And we were taught to use them. And we were allowed to use them as children, but there were a couple rules about guns. And one of them was, you were never allowed to take a gun out of the gun case by yourself. You had to have somebody with you. So that meant if she wanted to go duck hunting before school started in the morning, 
She had to wake me up, which usually meant the dogs came in and licked your face and we'd cry. We lived on the city limits of Anchorage, and so if you just crossed the street, went down the bluff, we could, she could, we was, I was along for the ride, hunt. And basically, she and the dogs would go hunt, and I'd find somewhere out of the weather to curl up and wait and wet dog in the face. We were done and go back up the hill, but you had to participate in some way, and really my end of the deal usually was the processing and the preserving of the food. And that was one of the elements our parents had taught us. If you were gonna hunt it, kill it, gather it, grab it, you needed to be able to prepare it, preserve it, take care of it for future. Fast forward 20 years. I meet a man. On our third date, we decide to elope. We wait a few weeks, we get married. We don't spend a lot on the backstory. But a few days after we're married, he's already got a work trip planned to Craig and he's going to meet the first member of my family um, that he's going to meet because we hadn't been dating that long, so nobody had ever met. And I'm not really worried about it because I know that he's going to mesh right in with my sister because even though we haven't known each other very long, one of the first things I noticed on date number two when I went to his house was his kitchen was covered with canning jars and canning supplies, and there was meat and fish and berries, and he had picked it all, and... He's a machine when it comes to production, my husband. He provides for a whole network of people, and my sister had always done that for a whole network of people. And for most of our adult life before I was married, my sister still hunted for me. And my job was to come to her house and either take care of the kids while she went out and killed a deer for me, and then I could package it and preserve it and take it home. I had fresh venison, and she got to go hunting without the kids, and it was a great deal. And then I married this guy who fast friends with my sister and in the subsequent 22 years we've been married he's hunted with her and her husband all over and um, one of my husband's favorite sayings and he's the king of witticisms is it's about the free meat now free meat doesn't mean no cost right you understand that free just means you didn't pay a store but any plane tickets boat costs, insurance, fuel. That's, that doesn't count. That's, it's free meat if you went and got it yourself. All those other expenses are just expenses. The meat itself was free. <laughs> right, you get that. So endless amount of time in our life has been consumed with free meat processing, but along the way, I generally am on the shore side of events. I love to go on the adventure, but I'm just as likely to be wandering around the trees picking up sticks and making a fire and making camp or, you know, on the boat, neglecting my fishing pole, looking at the clouds, that kind of stuff. So if they need a body count to get an extra rod or an extra deer ticket, then I'm in. But otherwise, I'll stay home. And anytime you're at my sister's, this hunting stuff, it involves lots of people and gear and boats, and there's always a madness. And the joke is... You've been there long enough. You need a vacation for my sisters. But over the course of 20 years of marriage, it's always like that at my sisters. And then two years ago, we find ourselves at Thanksgiving, and it's a really quiet. The kids are grown, and they're not there, and there hadn't been 10 deer killed. There were two deer still hanging in the meat shed, and the husbands are going to leave the next morning and just check the shrimp and crab pots for the day, and they'll be back by noon. And Mark will get take care of those two deer when he comes back. About noon, we get a call meet them down at the beach in front of the house. But it's not shrimp and crab we're offloading. There are four more deer coming in. And now the meat shed has the two that already need to be cut and the four from that day. And the boys need to go out and check the shrimp and crab pots. And they won't be back before dark. And 
you know, there's a pile of work to be done. Ellen and I finish our lunch, and my sister says to me, well, let's get started on the meat. And I kind of try and deflect her of, you know, Mark likes to butcher his own meat. We'll wait till he gets home. And she has plenty to needle me about. And we go out to the meat shed. And I'm slow and out of shape. And I never could sharpen the knives right because I'm a lefty and I don't hold the steel correctly. So fine, sharpen my knives. And we butcher our deer, the two deer they're hanging that we're going to take back to Juno with us. And we get dinner on the table, the boys come back, the shrimp and crab and more work to be done. And after dinner, Mark pushes back and very exhaustedly says, well, I better go start cutting the deer. And my sister says, no, we took care of it this afternoon. And my, my husband turns to my sister and says, well, thank you for doing that for me. And, and she says, well, Sarah and I each did one. And in that moment, he turns to my sister and says, she doesn't know how to butcher a deer. And my sister turns to me, and I say, he never asked. <laughs> now, I have to give you the epilogue, which is a few days after we returned from that trip, he signed us up to volunteer to what we now call our redneck dates, which is we are the roadkill salvage crew. So if you call the troopers or JPD because you hit a deer, we come to clean it up and butcher it to get into the Salvation Army food bank. And this winter when he went moose hunting, he got two, so we'd each have one to cut. You're listening to Mudrooms. The stories you just heard were recorded live on April 3rd, 2018. The theme for the evening was White Lies. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit us online at mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from storyboard members Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Alita Buss, and Sarah Hannon. Music by Tom Loker. I'm Alita Buss. Have a good night.